Hey everybody, welcome to the Rich by 36 podcast, a show dedicated to helping people understand money. I'm your host, George Murphy. Today I'm going to discuss modern monetary theory. And the catchy idea that's grabbed uh, a lot of headlines over the last couple of years uh, has been that you know proponents of modern monetary theory say that you can just print money, government deficits don't matter, you can print money to finance government spending. Uh, I'm going to unpack that. I think there's a lot more to this theory than we know about. And uh, I'm going to deconstruct a few myths around that, Mary. It's an expansive topic. It's been put forth by some of the brightest minds in finance. And I definitely won't be making every argument for and against it today, but it will be a good primer to build from. If you or somebody that you know uh, would like to come on the show and discuss modern monetary theory, I'd love to have you. I'm intensely interested in this topic, and I think that it's it's coming, whether we like it or not. So I'd love to learn more about it. You can shoot me an email at george at richby36.com. This episode of Rich by 36 is brought to you by the Beastly newsletter. The Beastly's a subscription stock newsletter that we publish every week at richby36.com. We use fundamental analysis to tell you what to buy and why you should buy it, and then we lay a technical screen over the stock to tell you exactly when to sell. And the newsletter started as a way to help investors take their financial futures into their own hands. The burden of retirement and savings has, has really shifted over the last couple of decades from the government and from corporations with Social Security and pensions uh, onto the individual with 401ks. Our education system hasn't caught up. I see all too often, and I, I used to be a financial advisor, people come and pay exorbitant fees and you know, for lackluster performance, for stuff that they could be doing for themselves. So the Beastly's are our attempt to help you solve that. We take the stress out of investing. We tell you what to buy and when to sell. Uh, you can sign up today at richby36.com. Get your first two weeks for free. Try it out. See if you like it. And if you do, when you do, it's just $27 a month after that. As of this morning's open, we were up 4.98% on the S&P 500 since we started the newsletter in mid-August. We've come back to earth a little over the last week, but all things considered, I'm relatively happy with 5% outperformance considering the market conditions over the last two months. We've had choppy markets with the impending election and with COVID cases on the rise again. Uh, if you look at the S&P since August 17th, it's down 0.51%. And if you just look at the last month, the S&P is down 3.74%. And that was, uh, again, as of open this morning. All right. After the piece with MMT, I'm going to talk uh, after the piece on MMT, I'm going to talk about a few of the trades that we put on last week and why we like those companies. As always, you can reach me at George at richby36.com on Twitter at rich underscore by underscore 36. And on Instagram, at richby36. Let's get it. Modern monetary theory, or MMT, is a macroeconomic theory that pertains to countries with complete control over their own fiat currency. And it posits that government spending cannot be thought of like a household budget. Instead of thinking of taxes as revenue, taxes on a country's citizens are actually 
behavioral controls and a method to redistribute wealth. And government spending shouldn't be viewed as an expense, rather a method to ensure that the economy stays close to full employment. The central idea and the idea that opponents of MMT detest is that governments with fiat currency systems like the United States, Japan, and Australia should print uh, or quote-unquote digitally create as much money as they need to spend. Federal deficits can be expanded way beyond the scope of what traditional economists had believed was safe or even possible. So according to MMT, the only limit the government has when it comes to spending is the availability of real resources like workers, construction supplies, that sort of stuff. When government spending, meaning the amount of money introduced into the economy, is too great with respect to the resources available, that's when inflation can surge if decision makers aren't careful. And this topic became of interest to me after listening to Dr. Stephanie Kelton on last week's Macro Voices podcast. Dr. Kelton is a leading authority on MMT. She serves as uh, she served as the chief economist in the U.S. Senate Budget Committee in 2015 and as a senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. I found her to be eloquent, passionate, and really convincing uh, in her conversation with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. So in, in her new book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and the Birth of the People's Economy, Dr. Kelton claims that there are six myths around MMT. And Mr. Townsend Asked her some questions about a few of them. And I, I'm going to paraphrase some of the, the questions and answers here. I think they're really going to help us uh, start to understand what MMT is and what it is not. So the first question posed to Dr. Kelton was about the national deficit. Does the government need to balance its budget? The idea that governments have to pay for things and that the government faces a budget constraint is a staple of traditional economics. And according to Dr. Kelton, governments have a choice when it comes to how, how to pay for their spending. They can, one, pay for spending with tax revenue. And if they need to spend more, one option is to raise taxes to come up with the money to pay for the additional spending. Another option is to borrow or finance their spending, you know, in the United States case, issuing treasury, uh, treasury bonds. And then the third option, which is one that often gets thrown under the rug pretty quickly is that sovereign governments, which have their own currency, can print money and pay the bills that way. Modern monetary theory claims that there's only ever been one way that federal government spending has ever been financed, which is with the creation of new money. Only after, only after spending dollars into existence are they then available to pay either taxes or buy government bonds. Which makes sense, right? It's, 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 if you think about it, it's kind of like a, a chicken and the egg situation. The government has to create a fiat, fiat currency that its citizens can use before the government then levies taxes and borrows in that fiat currency, right? The U.S. dollar didn't just appear out of thin air. And if you look at the money supply in the United States since 1960, the growth is astounding. We've been doing a lot of printing. In 1960, we had less than $1 trillion in circulation. That number has grown to over $19 trillion today, just below $20 trillion. So according to Dr. Kelton, once you accept that the government has always printed money to finance spending, the next logical question is what about taxes and government bonds? What are they for? If the government can print money out of thin air, why do we have to pay taxes at all? She brings up the CARES Act. 
The biggest relief package that has ever gotten through both the House and the Senate, uh, and that happened earlier this year, is worth $2.2 trillion. The CARES Act was not a clean bill. In other words, the spending wasn't offset by budget cuts somewhere else. Congress committed to spending money that it did not have, and rightly so. We had a a COVID pandemic. The market was tanking. The liquidity had dried up. A lot of people were losing their jobs. This money was needed. So Congress, Congress comes to the Federal Reserve as the government's fiscal agent and says, we're gonna, we need you to carry out these payments by changing numbers in the appropriate bank accounts. So for the people who got that $1,200 stimulus check, the way that that money got into your account is the Federal Reserve went to the bank that you bank at, and they just changed the numbers in, the, numbers in your account upward. So there was no pairing or higher tax to go along with the spending. So why do we have taxes at all, right? According to Dr. Kelton, one one reason governments have taxes is to create demand for a currency. If if people are taxed, they have to work to earn money to pay taxes. Another reason taxes are important is that they pull money out of the economy and they reduce the purchasing power of spenders in the economy. If the government wants to build a large infrastructure project and spend trillions into the economy, they might worry that spending these trillions can push prices higher, leading to inflationary pressure. Taxes help balance the government's money creation and slow the march of inflation. And inflation is the key, the key risk in modern monetary theory. And we'll touch on that a little bit more in a second. Another reason taxes are important is because they allow the government to pull a lever if it's interested in rebalancing the distribution of wealth and income. They might think that the distribution of wealth has become too extreme and put a new tax on or push an existing tax higher to rebalance things. And then finally, you can use taxes to disincentivize behavior in the economy, things like gas taxes, tobacco taxes, soft drink, soft drink taxes, alcohol, etc. Dr. Kelton mentioned several important reasons for a government to impose taxes, but MMT does not think of taxes as a source of revenue to pay the bills for the government. The next myth Dr. Kelton tackles is that MMT will cause inflation. Excuse me. She astutely points out that no one really has a working model of inflation and cites Daniel Tarullo, a former Fed Board of Governors member who, when he left the Fed, made huge headlines when he gave a speech saying that the Fed doesn't have a working model of inflation. As an aside, inflation is such a broad term that to just flatly say that MMT will cause inflation doesn't doesn't mean much. MMT proponents argue that federal government... And this is interesting. The MMT uh, argument is that the federal government's budget constraint should be replaced with an inflation restraint and that not all inflation is caused by excess demand. And I think this is something that we know, whether it's a drug company raising prices on prescription drugs or Wall Street speculation on commodities or houses. There's several sources of inflation that cause prices to rise in a specific commodity or product that aren't caused by the general state of demand. And they're not best regulated by aggregate demand policies. MMT argues for stronger stronger regulation in industries like oil, finance, and national defense spending to control corporations and keep them from simply hiking prices to increase the bottom line. So would it make sense for the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates to combat um, you know, prescription drug prices increasing, which will certainly look like 
you know, it'll hit the bottom line of the consumer price index, but it's not inflation. It's just a, uh, it's just a corporation being greedy, right? I don't think that raising interest rates aren't the prescription to solve that. And there's a lot to unpack with MMT. The principles espoused under the theory are thought-provoking, and they dive into a lot more than monetary theory, oddly enough. And one of these theories is that the deficit can grow as long as it doesn't outpace economic output. I think that this sentence is far-reaching, and it's something that we as a country should start to consider right now. We've already seen how fast the money supply has grown over the last 60 years. The Federal Reserve and Congress are already using digital money creation to buffer economic shocks. They did it this year. They did it in, you know, in the wake of the great financial crisis. But our economic output is suffering. And remember, we talked, you know, MMT says if you can continue to print money digitally, as long as the money creation does not outpace the economic output of your country, and that's happening right now. Second quarter GDP in this country decreased by 32.9% year over year. And yeah, I mean, COVID, right? But the massive increase in money supply, coupled with this huge decline in economic output, is a, it's a recipe for disaster if one of those inputs isn't corrected soon. So the real question that I think to ask based on deficit spending not outpacing economic output is which political party or even individual politicians can help us reach a viable and sustainable long-term rate of economic growth. Because it seems like whether or not we want to do this, we've already adopted part of modern monetary theory, which is the government can just print money to pay their bills. It would seem whether or not we accept that we are practicing modern monetary theory or not, that we have to couple, we have to fix the other side of this equation. We have to get economic output back on track or else we're really going to be in line for a rise in inflation. And all right, so just as, a, as an example, like in the Beastly newsletter, I recommend stocks that are profitable, but more importantly, stocks that operate in growing industries. I believe this is one of the most important considerations to make when you're choosing stocks to hold over a long period of time. They have to have room to grow and to innovate and to take market share. All right, so how many of you are actually holding brick-and-mortar retail stocks or oil and gas companies in your portfolios? I'd wager there's very few. And that same principle should apply to our economy, right? We've reached, we've reached this inflection point where technology is trying to pull us into this next era and the established old money companies with deep pockets seem to be holding us back. I mean, do you think that oil companies will ever support something like the Green New Deal until they can figure out how to get paid from it? Do you think there's ever going to be meaningful financial financial reform until the big banks can, can get a cut? No. So it, it is very scary to me that we, you know, we've, we've adopted the first part of MNT. Just give the keys to the printer to Congress. And we haven't done anything to address the other issues that come along with that. And, you know, if you look at, there's, there's so much, um, there's a lot of really well-written, well-researched articles online, like the Financial Times has published several of them, from economists who are MMT proponents who talk about, like, yes, you can print money to pay your bills. 
But all of these other things have to go into this if you want this to be a successful experiment, right? We've never done quantitative easing before. And, you know, in a, in a big way, that's, that's very much like modern monetary theory. But we haven't had any of the other, you know, checks and balances that should come along with handing the, the keys to the printer over. And I do think that this, like, we do need to pick a side. What are we going to do? And we need to pick a side soon. And I do think that this really ties into the first trade that we put on last week in the Beastly Newsletter. It was the Spider Gold Trust, GLD. We had a five-to-one risk-reward uh, in this trade. And our investment in GLD, is it's, it's really the most top-down call that we've made to date. Since March, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has increased by over $3 trillion through purchases of securities and open market and creating bank reserves with digital money printing, right? Essentially, like we just said, making a mark in a ledger, Bank XYZ now has X percent more reserves, and then fractional banking means that Bank XYZ can go out and lend more money to the public. They Thus, that's how they create money out of thin air. And if uh, you know, I talked about money supply growth since 1960. If you just look since October of last year, there's $15 trillion in circulation. By August of this year, there was $18 trillion, $658 million, no, $18 trillion, $658 billion, $100 million in circulation. All right, so three, yeah, over $3 trillion have been digitally created this year. And, you know, you would think that as more and more money gets digitally created, that the value of the dollar you hold becomes marginally worth less, right? In other words, it'll cost you more dollars to purchase the same goods or services, and which is inflation, right? We haven't had that yet. But I do think that there's got to be some... Uh, some consequence for just creating this massive amount of money and not having the economic output to back it up. So, you know, inflation, we're not seeing that yet, but it's not directly correlated with the price of gold, but it's generally a a positive sign for gold bulls. And I guess I should have explained the the S&P, the Spider Gold Trust, GLD, uses, uh, they're an ETF, that tracks the price of gold. As more money comes into the, into the ETF, they have to go out and purchase gold and they keep it in bank vaults in, I think, London, I believe. And, and the price of gold is determined by, you know, like most other ath- assets, by supply and demand and investor sentiment. And the supply is relatively constant, unless, you know, you listened to our interview last week with Eric Mason, and, you know, unless we discover some new world and uh, kill all their people and, and take all their gold, the supply of gold doesn't increase that much every year anymore. Demand and investor sentiment are the key drivers here. And as the money supply increases, we have company debt levels increasing, the stock prices maybe becoming overvalued, especially when you, when you look at what's happening with economic output and earnings. And I think inflation expectations are increasing, and investors are seeking the safety of gold. And if you look at what's happened to the price of gold since the great financial crisis, you know, in 2008, what did it bottom at? $600 an ounce. 2011, it's already it skyrocketed up to an all-time high, just under $2,000 an ounce. 
And so in economic uncertainty, people go for the safety of gold. And we've had that this year. You know, gold hit a new all-time high this year, breaking $2,000 an ounce. And I think that there's still a lot of room to run over the next couple of years here. The United States has already surpassed 100% debt-to-GDP ratio. And the Republican Budget Committee is projecting a surge to 200% by 2050. And anyway, another important distinction to make about commodity ETFs is whether or not the ETF actually takes physical possession of the underlying commodity. And I mentioned it already, GLD does. An ETF like USO, uh, and we're actually going to interview a commodities trader on Thursday's show, and we talk about uh, Contango and, and, you know, rolling, basically the, let me explain it with USO. The United States oil fund doesn't take physical possession of oil. Instead, USO purchases futures contracts that are tied to the future price of oil. And when the future price of oil is more than today's price of oil, the market is deemed to be in Contango. Every month, when the futures contract uh, contract expires, in order to not receive physical delivery of the of the commodity of oil, USO has to close out their position. Right, so they're they're long a, a futures contract that expires at the end of this month. They have to sell that futures contract and roll it, purchase another futures contract that expires a couple of months from now. So every month, when the market is in contango. There's a roll yield associated. There's a cost to roll over your lower price contract to a higher price contract, which just eats away at your principal. GLD doesn't have to worry about that. They take physical possession of the gold in the fund. As more dollars are invested in GLD, GLD goes out and purchases more physical gold, which is a huge benefit to investors. Look, not to beat a dead horse, but there are incredible headwinds facing the U.S. monetary system over the coming decade. And I think that gold is a great investment. And aside from purchasing the gold bars directly, which I guess you could do, uh, GLD offers the most pure play way to get exposure to this asset class. The second stock that we recommended last week was Pinterest, and Pinterest had one hell of a week. Uh, It almost hit our price target in, in six or seven days. Uh, you know, and I'm sure everybody knows this, but, you know, Pinterest is a, a different kind of social media platform. They're, they're a shopping and design, for lack of a better term, site. And when users find something that they like on Pinterest, they can pin images to specific boards. Pinterest algorithm then suggests more new pins based on the user's interest in previous activities. And some of those suggestions can be advertising. Pinterest recently partnered with Shopify to reduce its reliance on ad spending. And we think this is a great move that can help insulate Pinterest from one-off quarters like the second quarter of 2020 when the pandemic ground digital advertising to a halt. Companies cut spending to navigate the crisis. If you look at their revenue over the last five quarters, they only had 4% year-over-year growth in the second quarter uh, of this year. I mean, they still grew, but it Historically, you're looking anywhere from 35 to 60% year-over-year revenue growth. So not the worst thing in the world, but certainly there was a slowdown. And that partnership with Shopify couldn't come at a better time. Pinterest users are known for high shopping intent, 
with almost 80% of users basing their shopping decisions on pinned items. The new shop channel will allow U.S. and Canadian merchants to turn existing products in their stores into product pins on, int- on Pinterest, as well as add a shop tab to their profile on, print- on Pinterest for free organic promotion. Shopify merchants can, al- merchants can also promote their pins as a paid ad. And this partnership is going to bring them a significant amount of purchase commissions over the next coming years. And if you look, uh, Pinterest is expected to become profitable for the first time this year uh, with earnings per share of $0.06. By 2022, earnings per share are expected to increase to $0.53, whatever that is, uh, a a boatload percent increase. They currently have $1.7 billion uh, in cash on the balance sheet with total debt of just $151 million. And our, our thesis for this, you have a company that's just turning profitable, they're in a growing industry, and you have this change in consumer behavior, like the rise in e-commerce. Pinterest has an increasing ability to monetize user, users, and then there's also a backlash toward large social media players, which we're, you know, we've talked about with the House Judiciary Committee, uh, calling Facebook and Google monopolies. You know, people under 25 are the fastest growing user segment for Pinterest. And the place has always been a, a, a nice place for people to shop and source creative ideas. It, it, there's, there's not Twitter bots. There's no fake news stories. So, look, the, the company turned profitable this year. We wanted to ride that momentum wave, and we, we damn near hit our price target in one week. Uh, it's it's pulled back since and for a couple of days, but we're still up pretty nice on this. And our last trade for the week, Calabo Growers, CVGW, it's avocados. I mean, amazingly enough, uh, <laughs> the company sold in the, in the second quarter of, of uh, 2020 $145 million worth of avocados. And, and pardon my French, but that is a fuck ton of avocados. And... Everybody's talked about this. U.S. demand for avocados has just skyrocketed over the last 20 years. On average, each person in the United States consumes eight pounds of avocados a year. That's crazy. That, I mean, that's, it actually kind of reminds me of those. You used to hear like every person swallows two spiders a year when they sleep. I'd rather be eating eight pounds of avocados. And if you look at Calavo's revenue, it's increased right alongside demand. Uh, touching $1.25 billion dollars. Last year, their stock price still hasn't returned to pre-pandemic levels. And this drop in price, I think, is pretty telling of how investors view uh, consumer behavior in, during a recession, right? People are going to cut back on uh, discretionary items like Starbucks or avocado and, and that sort of stuff. They're going to just buy the stuff that they need. And guess what? I don't know why I didn't do this. I should have fucking bought Starbucks three months ago. Because every time I drive by drive by a Starbucks, the the life the line for the drive through is is out into the street. And if you look at U.S. avocado consumption in this country, and this is over the last twenty years, even if you include two thousand and eight, it's basically a straight line up. In two thousand and one, the average American consumed three avocados a year. And again, in two thousand and 18, it's over eight. There's a very obvious uptrend in, in temporary shocks like the great financial crisis in 2008. 
they've done very little to impact the long-term demand in avocados. The global avocado market is projected to grow up 5% annually over the next four years. Calavo should see a rebound in price as the economy and demand normalizes. And, you know, we've entered our position in Calavo on weakness, and we're prepared to exit once we hit our price targets. So we think this is a quality company. They have a dominant market position, but it, it does operate in a cyclical business. And we want to make sure that we have our limit order in, that we can realize our price target once it hits. That'll do it for this week. Make sure you check out some of the other free resources that we offer at richby36.com. We have a Money Talks blogcast where we dive into personal finance. Um, we have a blog where we discuss all sorts of macroeconomic trends. And then we, obviously we have the Beastly Newsletter, which we're having tremendous success. Please, you know, if you're already a subscriber, thank you. Let other people know about it. The more subscribers that we get, the better content we, we can create the more offerings we can bring out. We, what we want to do, I'll take you behind the hood here. The, the Beastly is just our first foray into a subscription newsletter. Once we hit a certain subscriber number, uh, we want to bring in and, and, and offer more. We want to have a, uh, you, you know, do the same sort of thing in international markets. We want to do the same sort of thing in developing markets. We want to have an options newsletter. Uh, so this is just our, our first foray. We need help. We need help getting to our subscriber targets. Uh, so please don't keep it a secret. Richby36.com. Uh, and we'll talk to you on Thursday. High your shoes, got a red dress on. Gonna light the fuse, stay out till dawn. Whistle blows at the factory downtown. He changes his clothes, he's gonna paint the town. Have a news alive tonight